Let's uh, pray together as we prepare to look into God's Word. Lord, thank you for that great, great promise that you are coming again. We long for your appearing. We long for you to come back for your church to take us home. Teach us, Lord, today from your Word the things you want us to know about your coming back. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. So I drove to the church this morning, earlier, before the first service. As Dee said, there was thick fog on the road. As I was driving, I thought, you know, the Christian life is a lot like this. God doesn't show us a whole lot of what's ahead. He just shows us enough to kind of take the next step, to keep enduring, to hang in there. And though we'd like to know more what's coming, if we really did know what was coming into our lives, we'd probably be terrified and turn around and go back the other way. But in his grace, he shows us just what we need to know. But there are some things, he says, I want you to know about the future. I do want you to know some things, as we looked at last week, about what life will be like until I return. The last days, during the last days, as we looked at last week, he said life would be a life of difficulty, trials, persecution for your faith, people trying to claim that Jesus has returned when he really hasn't. It's a life of difficulty, but also a life of opportunity that we have, opportunity to share our faith and opportunity to grow in our faith in Christ, to trust him in the midst of life and its difficulties. Well, Jesus, in his last recorded message to the disciples before he went to the cross in the book of Luke. Anyway, it's his last recorded message. Also wants us to know some things about his second coming itself. And it's important that we know these things. Now, some of you are real prophecy buffs. You love studying the end times. You love looking through the the uh, books of Revelation and Daniel and all and trying to figure it out and you've got charts and you've got everything laid out just so you can figure it all out. Others of you, when you even think about the whole topic, you kind of get terrified and nervous and confused and you'd rather not talk about it. And if someone asks you, well, are you pre-trib? Are you mid-trib? Are you post-trib? Or are you amillennial? Are you premillennial? Are you post-millennial? And You just kind of shrug your shoulders and say, well, I'm pan-millennial. It'll all pan out in the end. (laughs) And it is confusing if you try to nail it down because a lot of the things that God has said to us in the scriptures about the end times, his second coming, are in prophetic books, apocalyptic books. It's a kind of literature that is purposely hidden. And so one person will study it and come up with a scenario and someone else will come up with another and it's it's meant to encourage us that he is coming again and he is all-powerful, but it isn't, I believe, meant to give us a play-by-play scenario blueprint of what is coming. But there are some things we do need to know about his second coming that are very clear, I think, that the Apostle Paul tells us and that Jesus himself tells us. And today we'll be looking at those things in Luke 21. We'll be starting in verse 25. 
as we look at some truths we need to know about Jesus' second coming, and then we'll talk about how he wants us to live in light of those truths. So Luke 21, turn with me there if you would, and we'll look at five truths that I believe Jesus wants us to know about his second coming. The first truth we touched on last week, an earlier part of this passage, the truth that no one will be able to discern the time. No one will be able to predict it. Though we'd love to predict it, though we'd love to figure it out, we can't. It's very clear. If you look back in verse 8 of Luke 21, Jesus said, See to it that you be not misled, for many will come in my name saying, I'm he, and the time is at hand. The time is now. This is the particular time. He says, don't follow them. Don't be misled. He says in the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 24, he says in verse 36, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Yeah, we want to know, don't we? And, and people continue to write books and tapes and try to figure out the scenario. I like uh, the comic strip Dilbert this week. There was an appropriate one, I thought. Dilbert comes to the boss, says, As you requested, here's a schedule of all future unplanned network outages. I took the initiative to include a schedule of all future sick days, volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, and hurricanes. This is the point you realize how stupid your request was, and we have a good laugh. But the boss ignores what he says and says, Does CNN know about this? (laughs) You know, if only we could predict, if only we knew when all these disasters were coming, if only we could figure it out. We want to, and I don't know how many people have given me books about the end times or given me a tape and said, listen to this. It'll show you how everything's being fulfilled. And out of all those predictions that have been fulfilled, and it appears that some things are, but, but yet, you know, every generation throughout church history has thought that. And everyone has been wrong up to this point. Everyone. So Jesus says very clearly, you won't know. You will not know. Not the angels, not anyone, except the Father. The way Paul, the Apostle Paul and Peter, in their books, talk about the end times, they say it'll be like, Jesus' coming will be like a thief in the night. And the description there is, you know, you go through your routine every day, right? You live life. At night, you brush your teeth, you floss your teeth, you, you know, go to bed, and... uh, uh, the next night, it's the same. The kids wake you up three or four times. You know, it's the same routine every night. But one night, if a thief was to break in, you couldn't predict it. It would just happen. It would be unexpected. And he's, Jesus says, that's what my coming will be like. You will not be able to predict when it will come. So as we'll see later, he says, live as though it could be tomorrow. Today, even. So the first truth we need to know so we don't get misled and caught off guard is no one can predict the time of Jesus' coming. Don't be misled. Don't be fooled. The second truth he wants us to know comes in verses 25 through 28. And that is when he does come, there'll be absolutely no doubt. (laughs) The whole world will know it. Listen to his description. Verse 25, And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, And upon the earth, dismay among nations, 
in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the very powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He says, everybody will know when I come. And he describes first what will happen will be an actual overturning of the natural order. Right now, all of science is based on observing the natural laws at work. Gravity and the laws of physics and the laws of the, of the stars, astronomy and all that. We can observe all that and it moves in a fixed pattern and everything is held together by those forces, ultimately by the Lord behind those forces. Well, what he's describing here is that right before Jesus comes, those natural laws will get thrown out the window. They won't function anymore. He's describing how there'll be changes in the sun and the moon and the stars. People will begin to be terrified, wondering what in the world is going on. There'll be the roaring of the sea and the waves. He's describing a time when right now the sea is held in check by the boundaries of the land, we're told, that God set up. But at the end times, the sea will no longer be bounded. The roaring and the waves will go everywhere, it appears. The universe will no longer be functioning as it has been. It says, for the very powers of the heavens will be shaken. The imagery he's giving of that the powers of heaven be shaken and falling, it's tottering and falling down. It seems at that point that that the separation of the heavens from the earth will be bridged. And I don't know what that means, meteors or whatever, we don't know, but at that point, the natural laws we function under will change. Hebrews describes it this way in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 and following. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if those did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he is promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, all created things, in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. He says all of creation will be shaken, will totter, There'll be no doubt that this is the end of the world. <laughs> no doubt. And secondly, there'll be no doubt this is the end of the world because all men will see Jesus descending through the clouds. It says that in verse 27, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud. Down in verse 35, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. Everyone on earth that instantaneously will see Jesus descending from the clouds. How can that happen all at once? I don't know. But God's in charge. <laughs> he can do that. And he will. It will be obvious that he's here. The way it's put it again in the parallel passage in Matthew 24, verse 30, is this. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. All the nations of the world will see it happening at once. 
there's a scene I enjoyed in the movie Independence Day where the little boy's been out to play and he comes back in and the man says, what have you been doing? He says, oh, shooting aliens. He goes, oh, that's nice. Then he walks out to get the paper and he looks up and there's this massive spaceship covering the sky 15 miles across. All the major cities in the, in the world have one like that. You couldn't miss it. But when Jesus comes, it will be far more obvious than that. <laughs> there will be no doubt he's back. When God created the universe, he spoke. God spoke and the universe was created. In the incarnation, God whispered. And Jesus came as a little baby, secretly, humbly. But we're told in the scripture when the Jesus returns, God will shout. <laughs> With the shout of the archangel and the trumpet will sound and we'll all know he's back. So don't be fooled. Realize this great truth that when he comes back, we will all know it. He'll come in power and great glory. The third great truth he wants us to know about his second coming is to understand there'll be two responses when he comes. First response is of the nations, unbelievers. Verse 25 and 26, there'll be dismay among the nations, perplexity at the roaring of the waves, men fainting from fear and the anticipation of what's coming. See, it will be a time of terror for those who don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. A time of fear. Those who have been arrogant, self-dependent, independent, who never gave their hearts to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that will be a time of terror. But verse 28 says, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. The other response those of us who know Jesus Christ, it will be a time of incredible joy. We'll be able to straighten up with pride and courage and anticipation because this is the time when all that we've hoped for will be fulfilled. He says, why should we be that way? Because our redemption is drawing near. Romans chapter 8 describes this redemption of ours. Verses 22 and 23 of chapter 8, where he says this. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. We're all redeemed if you know Jesus Christ. Right? Our sins are taken care of. But we still live in this fallen world where sin and death have a grip on us and our bodies deteriorate and we struggle with, against the temptations of the world. And we all look forward to that day when that will be gone. The struggle will be gone. We'll get new bodies that will live forever with Him. That's the fulfillment of our redemption. Are we redeemed? Yes, our sins are forgiven. Do we have redemption to look forward to? Absolutely. And when Jesus comes again, all that will be fulfilled. And therefore, Jesus says, lift your heads. Look forward to that day. It will be the day you've waited for all your life. My dad fought in World War II. 
in the European front. And as uh, after they invaded Normandy and began to work through the villages of France, retaking France, they went from village to village, driving out the German army and delivering the French people. And as they came, the German soldiers were terrified of the army coming through, and they ran in terror. But for the French, the Allies moving in was a time of celebration, courage, joy, because here was their deliverance. And that's what it'll be like for us. Fear and terror for those who have been God's enemies, but joy and deliverance and celebration for those of us who have been waiting for him to come back, who are his people, part of his kingdom. Fourth truth Jesus wants us to know is that all of this is the fulfillment of all of history. It's the fulfillment of all the scriptures. It's the fulfillment of all that history has been pointing to all along since the beginning of creation. He quotes in verse 25... Jesus does a number of passages in Scripture. One of those is Joel chapter 2, verse 30 and following. It's where Joel wrote, And I will display wonders on the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Joel is describing a terrible time of judgment. And he says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I know there's some here who have never called upon the name of the Lord. And this is a good time to consider giving your life to him. All it takes is a prayer. Call upon the name of the Lord. And you can be one of those who lift their heads in excitement and joy and anticipation at his coming. Jesus also quotes Daniel, the book of Daniel, down in verse 27. Let me read those verses, Daniel, 17, or Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. You see, ever since the Garden of Eden, ever since creation, and Adam and Eve turned away and the fall happened, the entire universe, all of creation, and all mankind has been looking forward to a day of complete and utter redemption. Jesus wants us to know that that day is coming when he returns. When he returns, all will be set right. The fulfillment of all we've longed for will finally be fulfilled. I want to read again Romans 8. Because it describes how all of creation, everything has been waiting for that day. 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed in us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it, 
in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, all of creation, the things that happen, the disasters and the struggles, are all because of sin. And they'll all be set right with the new heavens and new earth that he creates when he returns. So he says, it's the fulfillment of all of history from the beginning to the end, that day of his second coming. Fifth truth he wants us to know that he tells us in 29 through 33 is that Jesus guarantees that his church will endure till he comes again. Let me read those verses, verse 29 through 33. He told them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you see it, and know for yourselves that summer is now near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He uses a parable of a fig tree, and he says, you know, after a harsh winter, you begin to see things begin to bud, so you know spring is coming. Yesterday, I noticed our um, bulbs were beginning to just poke their heads up through the, through the ground. So I know spring is coming. It's coming. Jesus says, you'll see it, believers. <laughs> you'll see it coming. We will be around to see it. And, and then he says something interesting in verse 32. I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. This is a very confusing verse for a lot of people. Because one meaning of the word generation there is everybody alive at one particular time. Well, some have said, well, Jesus was wrong then. He just thought he was going to be coming back before the disciples all died. So Jesus was just wrong. Well, I don't believe that. I believe Jesus is right. <laughs> the, another meaning for the word generation can mean a, a people, a group of people, a, a group of descendants that continue on, a family of descendants, a race. And some have taken this to be describing the Jewish people, that they will continue on. It's been interesting how the Jews have continued on over history, despite all the persecution they've experienced. But I really think he's talking about Christians, that the church will continue, no matter what happens throughout history, that God will see that it will continue through time and eternity. Why do I think that? Because the verse right before that, verse 31 you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Then he goes on to say, Truly I say to you, this race, what race? The kingdom people, the people who are part of God's kingdom, who know him as king of kings and lord of lords, this people will continue until the very end. You see, the church has been threatened throughout all history. There have been a number of times where the world has tried to exterminate the church, to destroy it. An example, a recent example, is in China. When the communists took over, they determined to completely exterminate the church in China. What happened when China began to open up? All that time, no missionaries could go there. No one could have contact with any Christians. We didn't know what we would find. We found a thriving underground church. God had continued 
to build his people, bring people to Christ, and build them up into maturity. The church continues no matter how bad it may look. The promise here, Jesus says, I guarantee the church will continue, and I guarantee it by my very word. Verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You'll make it to the end, he says. You can be confident. God's word created the universe. And his word guarantees that we will outlast the universe. <laughs> that we'll get there. We'll be with him forever. So those are the truths that I believe Jesus wants us to make sure we know about his second coming. We need to know. We can't predict it, but it is coming. He guarantees he'll protect us through it. We will endure through it as a people. And when he comes, we'll absolutely know it's true, and it will be the fulfillment of all history. Well, then the question for us is, how should we live in light of that? What does it really mean to us today? Does this affect my life, the second coming? I mean, I, I have to deal with bills, and I have to deal with jobs and diapers and all the things that we have to face with, age, aging parents, etc. We have to live life. So what does the second coming really mean to me today? How should it affect my life? Well, Jesus goes on to give us two things, two ways in which the second coming should affect our lives today. Verse 34 and 35, he says, Be on guard that your hearts may not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day come on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. First, Jesus says, in light of the second coming, guard your heart from worldliness. The second coming should help you guard your heart from worldliness, from being weighed down, he says, by the world. And he says a couple things about that. He says, be on your guard that your hearts not be weighed down with what? Dissipation, which is a big word that we all go, what does that mean? <laughs> Dissipation is uh, wastefulness. It's partying, really, carousing. It's, it's just partying. It's living life in a way that says, I need to feel good, so I'll do whatever it takes to feel good. And the next word where he says drunkenness, again, just fits into that whole idea of sensuality. You see, the world pulls on us to live a sensual life, to live a life of, I need to feel good. I need to be numb because life is hard and I don't want to feel the numbness and the difficulties and the struggles of life, the ache, the groaning we have when we long for heaven. So the world says, hey, you don't have to feel the ache. You don't have to struggle and long for Jesus to come back. I'll make you feel good. So the world offers all kinds of things. TV. It's a great numbing when you just want to avoid difficulty, just veg out in front of the TV. Drugs and alcohol, of course, he mentions that. Sex, all the pleasures of the world. Entertainment, we are such an entertainment culture. Why? Because it's a great escape, isn't it? It's a way to numb ourselves and just feel better in the difficulties of life. Not that we shouldn't enjoy life. But he says what will happen if we live for these things is we will be weighed 
down by them. Last few years, I've taken my kids to the Boise River Festival early in the morning, get up early and go watch the hot air balloons. And a couple years, our little ones were able to go for rides in the hot air balloons. And they really enjoyed that. You climb in, you go up a few feet, <laughs> and they pull you back down. And they're going, why can't we go higher? I want to go float across the sky like the ones we see. Well, no, you can't So you're, because you're tethered. And Jesus says, if you're tied down with the sensualities of life and you live your life in a way where you're seeking to just feel good and get by and avoid the pains of life, you'll be tethered, you'll be tied down, you'll be weighed down instead of being free to be and go where God wants you to. So he says, don't be tied down, don't be trapped. It's like a snare, he says, when you give in to these things. And he also says, don't be tied down or weighed down by the worries of life, the worries and responsibilities that we all have. Yes, we have to live life. Yes, we have mortgages to pay and rent to pay and jobs we have to take care of and life is difficult. We have to do all that. It's true. But I think Jesus's point is the cars, the houses, the money, the bills, do the worries of life consume you? Do they keep you from really living for the heavenly kingdom? You find yourself being so caught up trying to live for the earthly kingdom just to survive that, that you're tethered and you can't be free to be what God wants you to be. He says, be on guard. Don't be tied down by these things. Make choices in your life to not be consumed by these things. I think we need to evaluate how we use our time, what really consumes us. Are we building the eternal kingdom of God or an earthly kingdom that will eventually be utterly destroyed? Let's evaluate our lives. Because the world will demand that you fit into its sensuality. It'll demand that it consume your time and your energy and all that you are. But because we know the second coming is coming and that we can live for that eternal kingdom because it is true. Jesus will come back. It's the ultimate reality of all of history, of all of life. Therefore, I can be free to not be caught up and tethered by the world around me. Secondly, Jesus says this in verse 36, how we should live life in light of the second coming. Keep on the alert. It's really keep awake at all times praying in order that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. He says, stay awake. And what does that look like? Praying constantly that you might be strong enough to handle what's coming. In America, 20th century America, life is fairly easy for us as believers. So this rings as foreign in our ears. But Jesus is saying... It's tough. Life is tough. And the only way you are really going to handle it and to be all that I long for you to be is for you to be praying for the strength to handle what comes your way. He says that praying for the strength that you might be able to escape what's coming. But the word for escape there is one that means to go through something and survive it, come out the other side. It doesn't mean you avoid the difficulty. It's a word that's used to describe 
Paul and Silas, when they were in prison in Philippi, Acts chapter 16. And the jailer, when, the, when there was an earthquake and the doors blew open, the jailer thought they had escaped. They didn't avoid jail, but he thought they'd survived it and gotten out. It's also used in Acts 19 of the seven sons of Sceva, who were Jewish exorcists, and they wanted to exorcise a, a, a demon-possessed man. And they tried to do it, and the man beat them up. <laughs> and it says they escaped from him naked and bleeding. So they had to go through the beating, but they got away finally. They survived it. And I think what Jesus is saying is, pray that though you may come out naked and bleeding the other side, that you might survive it and come out the other side and be able to stand before me with confidence, not with shame, not with a sense that I live for the world, Lord, I'm ashamed of how I lived, but be able to stand before the Lord with confidence and joy and praise to him who saw you through as you continued to build the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of earth. See, if you keep your eyes on heaven, it will give you strength to not be tethered on earth, and it will set you free to live for him and endure whatever comes your way. I like the way Philip Yancey put it. He said, People most conscious of another world have made the most effective Christians in this one. And C.S. Lewis said this, Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. So Jesus says, I want you to be able to stand before me with confidence. Revelation 7 tells us what that will be like for all of us who know Jesus as our Savior and Lord have endured, have sought him, have lived for his kingdom. Revelation 7, verse 9 and following. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. What a praise chorus that will be. I read recently about how Eskimos in Alaska kill grizzly bears, most feared creature, really, on the face of the earth. What they do is they wait till the bears are hibernating, till they're asleep. Bears dig a deep den into the ground and under the snow. And then the Eskimos go tramping through the mountains, and they look, and they look for a little glazed part of snow where it's turned to ice. Because from underneath, the bear breathes and the vapor turns the snow on top to ice. They very carefully take that ice away, very quietly. They take a long spear and they put it down into the hole and they feel around till they feel something soft, sleeping. 
And then when they see the spear going up and down from the bear's breathing, they ram it home. The modern way is to do the same thing, only put a rifle next to it and shoot down along the rod and kill the bear as he sleeps. But the most feared creature of all the grizzly bears is what they call the winter bear. You see, a number of bears will get up during the middle of winter. They won't sleep. They'll be awake. And as they go around on the ground and they'll, they'll come up and they'll go to the river and they'll break through the ice and they'll fish for the, the fish that are swimming there. And as they do so, they get all wet and they get covered with the, the water that begins to freeze and then they roll in the snow. They become covered with a coat, an armor of ice. The Eskimos are terrified of them because they can't break through it. Arrows break on it, spears break on it, and that ice has been known to stop bullets as well. Jesus says, if you're sleeping as Christians, you're vulnerable. Satan can attack you. You become tethered. You can't be what God wants you to be. But if you're living awake with one eye on heaven, living for that heavenly kingdom, not lulled to sleep by the world around you, you're invincible. I will see you through to the end. It doesn't mean you won't struggle, but it means I will see you to the very end where you will stand before me and experience the new heavens and the new earth and all that he has for us. I just want to close by reading the last, some of the last verses in the whole New Testament, the book of Revelation, as all of history points towards Jesus' return. Revelation 22, verse 17, and then 20 and 21 says, And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Jesus offers it to every one of us to come to him now. If you've never done that, I exhort you to give your life to Jesus Christ. Now is a good time. If you need to talk to somebody, come up, talk to me or somebody afterwards. And then verse 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.